0: As always, so thankful to be with you this morning. I pray the Lord will be with us and bless our time together as he has in the song service. This morning in Bible study, we talked about the great mystery that is the gospel, the message, the good news of who God is, of how he's communicated himself to man, and ultimately of the saving work that he's imparted to each of his people, bringing us from life to death and from unrighteousness to righteousness, and from corruption to glory in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I want to turn now to the Gospel of John, and beginning in the first verse of the first chapter. And I want us to think a little bit more about this, this great mystery that is God manifest in the flesh, that is the person of Jesus Christ, and how he's addressed in the scripture outside of creeds and confessions and all of those documents that our forefathers have drafted to try to give greater clarity and explanation, I want us to understand that the doctrines we confess are not doctrines crafted by men, but doctrines affirmed by God in his word and declared in the clear teaching and pages of scripture. And I want us to consider uh, this this Gospel of John that I've been living in for quite some time now and have begun to, to try to speak on. First of all, let's understand the Gospel of John is different from the other Gospels in some significant ways. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all records of the life and ministry of the Lord and Savior, and they're records that begin with his birth and, or in Mark's case, with the advent of his earthly ministry. They record in a more or less chronological, uh, order the, the teaching of the Savior, the miracles of the Savior, and then ultimately the crucifixion and resurrection of the Savior. These Gospels were written in the relatively early days of the church by these apostles and men of God in the church who were communicating the essential message of of the ministry of Christ and the teaching of Christ to a a church that was growing rapidly and spreading throughout the, the known world. And there was a need for it to be more than just an oral history of the ministry of Christ. There was a need to declare with certainty those who had witnessed it and or received firsthand accounts that Jesus was indeed real, that he did indeed live that he was indeed born of a virgin, as prophesied in Scripture, and that he was the Son of God. And they declared that clearly. They recorded key messages and sermons that the Savior spoke, and they gave a chronological history of his ministry up until his death and, and resurrection, culminating with his declaration, his commission to his apostles and to the church thereafter, go forth and preach the things that you've heard me. Teach all things that I've taught you, commanding men to repent and be baptized and to follow after this teaching. So that's the first three gospels. This gospel of John was written sometime later, I believe, and it was written in direct response to corruptions that were entering into the church of Jesus Christ. There were heresies that were beginning to abound, even as the scripture itself warned. You remember the apostle Peter writes to the saints and he says in his epistle that while I'm yet in this body, I think it's meet for me to remind you of the things that you've received, though you know them. He says, I need to remind you of these things. And he closes out his epistle saying, Satan is like a roaring lion who's walking about seeking whom he may devour. And the Apostle Paul writes and says, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophies of men, through vain deceit. Beware. Beware. So we understand from the scripture and from the words of the apostles that the enemy is alive and well and he's warring against the faith, the souls, the belief of the saints. And that played out in the first century as it has every century since. As a matter of fact, every major heretical thought regarding the person of Jesus Christ or the plan of salvation or the salvation that is in Jesus Christ had its advent in the first two centuries. They've just been further developed and exploited and planned, and, and men have followed after them. Because you know what we are? We're weak. We're weak vessels. It's not without cause that Paul writes in the Corinthian letter and says, we have this treasure, this precious treasure, that is the truth that God has revealed to us in earthen vessels. That is vessels that are weak that break. It's not an accident that by inspiration Paul writes and he says, we now see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. That is, we'll understand it more clearly. Right now we're not asked to understand everything, but we are commanded to believe everything, to trust everything. So men are weak and men's minds are weak. And we have trouble understanding the mysteries of God. Again, we don't have to understand it. We have to trust it. But we think in our arrogance that we can figure things out. You say, well, we've moved past that. We have science. We have knowledge. We're smarter. We're better. We can understand things. Really? There's a large movement in the world today of people who believe the earth is flat. If you're one of those, I apologize. There's a greater movement in the world today of people who believe the earth is a sphere. People are confused. They believe lies. There's a great movement of people today who believe man has never left the atmosphere and has never walked on the moon. Again, if you're one of those people, a greater body of people believe men have walked on the moon. What's the truth? Men's minds are weak. And we can argue about anything. So we read this morning where Paul writes in the first epistle to Timothy without controversy. One thing there's no argument about is that there is a great mystery that is godliness. Who God is. God was manifest in the flesh. And he goes on with a list we already looked at this morning. So the apostle John writes at a time when the. Heresies that are various but are, are are gathered together under the general heading Gnosticism are prominent even in the churches. People are beginning to believe that Jesus Christ, yes, he came and yes, he was God, but he wasn't really a man. He wasn't really physical. Because the essential truth of the Gnostic heresy or Gnostic belief is that to attain to deity or to attain to, to relationship with deity is to know things, to gain understanding. And one of the essential truths that they held to was nothing that is physical, nothing that is fleshly can possibly be good. Fleshliness is evil. And there were different branches of this heresy. Some went into asceticism where they deprived themselves of everything. They lived a life of 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 willful neglect of self, thinking that would make them more holy, more spiritual, and draw them to God. Not unlike many branches of the Buddhist religion today. There were a lot of different branches and ideas, but John was living and ministering in the church at Ephesus where all of these ideas were coming together. There was one man in particular, a man named uh, Carathus or uh, Serathus, who was a Gnostic and he was a Jewish Gnostic. And his idea was that Jesus did not come in the flesh and that Jesus was really just another expression of the one God, the, the Jewish God. But... Beyond that, he also taught that the God of the Old Testament was totally different from the God of the New Covenant. His idea was the Old Testament God was rigid and demanding and had a law. And if you didn't keep the law, he would destroy you. He was a God of hatred and a God of destruction. The New Testament God was a different deity altogether. And he is the God who sent forth his son, offering a solution, a healing a deliverance from this Old Testament God. So he was a polytheist and he was a man who entered into the church. And this is the stuff John and the apostles were combating. So John writes this gospel and this gospel is unlike any other because this gospel focuses on the person of Jesus Christ. It focuses upon His deity, His holiness. And in the teaching there, instead of directing you to a better path and a new covenant different from the old covenant, He presents Jesus Christ as saying, I am the way. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the shepherd. All of the I ams, they're pointing you to Jesus Christ and pointing you to His deity. It's in this gospel that we read Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees where they say, if thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. And he says, I've told you. I've shown you. It's in this gospel that Thomas and the other apostles are there before Jesus' crucifixion. And they say, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And Jesus Christ says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. It's in this gospel that Jesus is recorded to say, I and my father are one. So all of those arguing against the Trinity and saying it was an invention of the third through sixth century are wrong. Because Jesus Christ is displayed as Trinity here in this gospel. And not in this gospel alone, because in Matthew at his baptism, what do you have? You have the presence of the Holy Ghost Descending upon him in the bodily form of the dove. You have Jesus Christ there standing in the water and being baptized beneath the wave. And you have the voice of God the Father speaking from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Trinity is represented throughout the scripture. It's represented in each of the gospels. And John is calling out the error of those who say Jesus Christ is not real. And he's not physical and he's not man. And John, contemporary with this apostle, writes his first epistle. And how does it begin? That one that we have seen with our eyes, that we've heard with our ears, that our hands have handled, of the word of life. He's real and we saw him and we heard him and we handled him. So now we turn to, first, uh, to the Gospel of John chapter 1. And it begins where it has to begin. In the beginning. In a very real way, this is the perfect introduction to the New Covenant, the New Testament. Because how does the Old Testament begin? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. John says the exact same thing. In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness and darkness comprehended it not. For some of you we already read this morning in Hebrews chapter 1 where this coming of Jesus Christ is described by another author, God, who at sundry times in a diver's manner spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. John says, without him was not anything made that was made, all things were made by him. The Hebrew author says that The worlds were made by him. So John's tagging on to the introduction to the Old Testament scripture. Inspired by God, Moses authored the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. John is presenting from the very beginning the same thing that's presented in the Old Testament. The Old Testament scripture does state that God is one God, and indeed he is. And yet in the very presentation of the creation story, God is presented in at least two and actually three persons. How can that be? Well, what is God? God is a spirit. What's a trait of God? What's an essential trait of God? God is everywhere present and nowhere absent. We're not going to take time to prove that, but believe it. The scripture teaches God is everywhere, all at the same time. So how can a being who is spiritual and is everywhere be described with a location? The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The Spirit. In my Bible, that's capital S. It's a capital G. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. God spoke. Who did he speak to? He was alone. In the beginning, there was God. There was nothing else. But God spoke. What is speaking? It's expression of communication. It's word. John begins his epistle in the beginning was the word, the Greek word logos, an expression of thought Word, And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, and it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. God continues his creation, and God said, and God said, and God said. And then in verse 26 of Genesis 1, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over all of this creation. God said, let us make man in our image. And that's no trick of the translators. It's no English mistake. The Hebrew expression refers to a plural. Let us make man in our image. John is in good and safe Territory. when he begins to describe creation, saying, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is, the Word was one with God. And what did Jesus say? I and my Father are one. So how are we going to explain that? How are we going to prove that? Believe me, I've spent a lot of time arguing with those who deny the Trinity of Godhead. I've argued with those who make fun of us, who ridicule us. These are people who have no understanding. The Word of God is clear. The same was in the beginning with God. all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is not just a man, he is the creator. He made all. Things. So when we think about Jesus, when we think about his humanity, when we think about the later verse in this chapter where it says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. This is a being to be worshipped as creator. This is a being to be worshipped as ruler. This is a being to be be worshipped as Lord. Today. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. That's a verse that speaks to the absolute sovereignty of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Nothing that exists, nothing that happens is outside of his authority. Nothing that exists is outside of his creative control. If it exists, he made it. Without him was not anything made that was made just the structure of this text argues against the the separation of the beings of the godhead because in one place we say god said and god said and god said and it was so there was light there was land there was uh there was the firmament of heavens there were the creeping things god said but here we have an expression that says without the word nothing was made that was made so there is oneness even in this, this seeming separation, this division. The Trinity is established here. And then he says in him was life and the life was the light of men. And creation gives us a vivid depiction of this. God spoke and things came into being. But God did an interesting thing with Adam. He took time to form Adam. Out of the dust of the earth. And and Genesis is very explicit in this. He forms this human body. Out of. The dust. Out of the ground. Out of dirt. And then God stoops down. And he breathed. Into his nostrils. The breath of life. In him was life. The life was the light of men. And then this paragraph in my Bible at least concludes with, and the light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. As I understand this verse, I liken it to that first verse of the Hebrew letter where it says, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past to the fathers by the prophets. John is saying this light this life that was the light of men, it shone through all the earth. The Apostle Paul, by inspiration in the first chapter of the Roman letter, addresses this reality. He says, the gospel has been given the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth. But before he goes on talking about the gospel, which is the full and perfect revelation of God's covenant and his purpose, he stops for a moment And he says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. They hold back, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God hath showed it to them. Now, who's he talking about here? Not those who have received the gospel because the gospel declares that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against that unrighteousness. Those who have known the truth, they've held down the truth, they've suppressed the truth and denied the truth and gone on to great ungodly deeds. He says, because God has showed it unto them for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So as John writes this this gospel, this record, he begins at the beginning and says the word is God, the word was God, the word was in the beginning with God, And without him, there was nothing made that was made, and his light shone in darkness. And the darkness comprehended it not. They could not, would not see. And Paul says they're without excuse. So this is where men stood. And that's where there's room to explain God's covenant revelation, His revelation of Himself to Adam, His revelation of Himself to Noah, His revelation of Himself to Abraham, to all of those who succeeded. Always greater understanding, always greater revelation, but always a rejection of the essential truth of who He was. So God spake in times past by the fathers, or to the fathers, by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken unto us by His Son by whom he made the worlds. John introduces the Christ story, not as Matthew and Luke do with the angel Gabriel coming to Joseph and Mary and not describing the birth of the Savior, not describing the calling of John the Baptist. John begins with the declaration of Christ's arrival. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, this being John the Baptist. Same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He wasn't that light, he was sent to bear witness. Verse 9, that, that, the Word, Jesus Christ, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. Jesus Christ came. He came, God manifest in the flesh, and that is a great mystery. It's hard to understand, but it's true. And John says, I'm going to go on record saying it's true because I held him, I heard him, I spoke to him, I was with him. The world knew him not, he came into his own, and his own received him not. We talked this morning a little bit about how God revealed himself in covenant to Israel, and one of the great mysteries is that he's preached unto the Gentiles. How is it that God can declare these people are my people and none other? And then in Jesus Christ, he can say, other sheep have I, which are not of this fold, them also must I bring. And his gospel be sent forth to all the earth, to all men. How can that be? It's a mystery. But here John addresses those Jewish people. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. We talked about how gullible, how easily deceived men are. Can you imagine that God came In the person of a human being, he raised the dead. He healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, spoke like no man ever spoke and spoke always truth and always did what was right. And there were men who heard him and saw him and witnessed him and denied him. How can such a thing be? He came to his own, his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. There's a great lesson here for us as we contemplate the mystery that is given us in the gospel. His own received him not. Jesus Christ was the perfect preacher. And Jesus Christ did always the things that pleased his father in heaven. And men beheld him, they witnessed him and that even some of his closest friends rejected him. How can such a thing be? It begs the question, how can anyone believe? And maybe more hitting home with us, how can we hope to convince anyone to believe? You see, we need to understand this great mystery. We need to understand that man will not believe No matter how well-crafted our argument, no matter how logical our presentation, no matter what we do, we're not going to make anyone believe. If Jesus Christ, the one who made all things and holds all things together, couldn't persuade them, what makes us think we would? And before I... I'm guilty myself of heresy. Let me say if he wanted to persuade them, he could have persuaded them. He wasn't interested in persuading those to whom it was not given. Neither should we be. The truth stands on its own. We don't need to convince. We don't need to develop greater arguments. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, to be manifestly the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Who is it that can believe? Those who are born. Not of the flesh, not of the will of the flesh, not by man's decision, not by the will of the flesh or of the will of man. I can't become a child of God because I want to be a child of God. I can't make my children children of God because I want them to be children of God. I can't make you a child of God because I want you to be a child of God. The only way is that you be born of the Spirit. He returns to this concept in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus is said to have come to the Lord and said, look, we know you're a prophet sent from the Father. But he came to him by night because he was afraid of the rulers. And this ruler of Israel came and spoke to Jesus and said, I know you're a prophet sent from God, but I need to understand more. And Jesus said, except a man be born... Of the spirit he cannot receive he cannot see the kingdom of heaven Nicodemus asks a dumb question Jesus gives him another answer and Jesus says except a man be born from above he cannot enter into the kingdom you can't see you can't enter in except you're born and he says the spirit of God it's like the wind it blows where it lists. It goes where it wants to go. You can't direct it and you can't even perceive it oftentimes. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. John lays this out as this gospel develops. Which were born not naturally of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, that is, of themselves, nor of the will of man, that is, someone outside, but of God. Start to finish it's God. What did he say there in that Hebrew letter, chapter 1, verse 1 through 3? He says, God spoke to us by his Son, by whom he made the worlds. who, when he had purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's all of grace. It's all of him. This word is the only one who creates. and He's the only one that gives life. That's why Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That's why Jesus says no man comes to the Father but by me. It's why Jesus speaking to the apostles when Peter had declared boldly, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee. Nobody told you this, and it wasn't your mind that comprehended it, but my Father which is in heaven. It has to be given you of the Father. But John goes a step further here in verse 14. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. What he's saying there, if you missed it, he's saying God was made flesh. This idea is conveyed throughout the scripture. It's conveyed throughout the New Testament. The apostle Paul, by inspiration, speaks multiple times of it. In the Philippian letter, he says that though he were equal with God, Though he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, yet he made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That is, the word who he refers to there as Christ condescended, stooped down, became a part of his very creation and learned obedience to death. He became a man in the Colossian letter, as he's establishing the preeminent value of Jesus Christ, that in all things, he must have the preeminence. The same author, the apostle Paul, by inspiration, writes of Jesus that he is fully, holy, totally God. Colossians. Chapter 1, we read in verse 15 of Jesus, "...who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist." He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself. I say whether they be things in the earth or things in heaven. The scripture confirms this, not in the mouth of two witnesses or three, but multiple Jesus Christ is God. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And then parentheses, John writes, and we beheld his glory. God is glorious. An encounter with God results in worship. And even those who denied him Remember when the the Sanhedrin sent men out to arrest the Lord in John's gospel? And they went to arrest him and they came back without him and they were called on the carpet by the authorities. Why did you not bring him? What was the answer? Never man spake like this man spake. They couldn't do anything. In Nazareth, when Jesus boldly declared, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach glad tidings of great joy. He's anointed me. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. The hometown folks said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Didn't we see him grow up? This man's nothing special. And they decided to kill him. Somehow he departed out of their midst. They didn't even see him. They could do nothing to him. That night in the garden as they came to arrest him, when Jesus had already said, they're going to arrest me, I'm going to die, they came and Judas kissed him on the cheek to identify him and said, this is the man. Peter drew his sword. Jesus says, put away your sword. He repairs the ear of the high priest's servant. But when they came to arrest him, Jesus spoke and they all fell back as dead men. John says, we beheld his glory. Jesus Christ was and is infinitely glorious when we see him. When we see Christ, there's glory. So Jesus writes to these who are questioning his deity, questioning his reality, questioning his fleshly nature, all of these questions about who Christ was. John said, without question, he is God. And without question, he's glorious. And John says personally, we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. John said there's no question to those of us who saw him, who he was and what he was. There are encounters recorded throughout the pages of Scripture of men encountering God's glory. You remember when Moses went up to the mount to receive the law from God, to speak to God. Moses requested of the Lord, if I could only see your face. God says, you can't see my face. No one can see my face and live. But God said, I'll do you this. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll pass by. And when I pass by, I'll allow you to look upon my hinder parts. The backside of his glory. And Moses came down from the mountain and his face was shining so bright the people asked him to put a veil over his face because just the reflection of the past glory of God was too great. The glory of God was seen before that as Job encounters his God. Job's the only man in scripture of whom it is said he was a perfect and upright man. Job loved the Lord, feared the Lord, hated evil. Job was a good man, and Job began to suffer for it. Why? Because God made a bargain with Satan, where God said to Satan, you can do whatever you want to my servant Job. I'm taking the bands off. Go to town. And Job suffers, and Job's not-so-faithful friends come and say, well, Job, you're really suffering because you're actually not a good guy. You're a bad guy, and God knows, and God's punishing you, and you've just been living a lie before all of us. And Job knows that's not true, and he begins to speak out and say, that's not true. I am faithful. I do love the Lord. And there's some back and forth for several chapters. And then this young man comes up and says, you're both wrong. He says to those who are counseling Job, his unfaithful friends... You guys don't know what you're talking about. How dare you presume to tell Job why he's suffering? And he berates them for a bit. And then he turns to Job and says, What sinful man would dare to say that he is righteous before a holy God? Job, you say too much. You claim too much. You don't know your place. And when he finishes speaking, the book of Job records that God came near. And this creation story of Genesis 1, this creation story of John 1 through 5, is embellished quite a lot. Because God tells us things about creation and tells us things about the world we live in that science still hasn't completely understood or embraced. And God begins by asking Job, where were you when I made the world? Where were you? And then it gets really bold and God doesn't let him go. Because Job recognizes the glory of God. He recognizes the terrible position that he's in. And he says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I'll lay my hand upon my mouth. This is Job 40, verse 4. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I'll proceed no further. Lord, I have no answer. I I place my hand over my mouth, and that's where we all should be when we contemplate the glory of God and the person of Jesus Christ. We simply trust. We simply believe. He's done all things well. But Job says, Lord, I have nothing to say. I can't answer you. I won't try to answer you. I'm going to be silent, but God doesn't let it go there. Now listen to what God says out of the whirlwind in verse 7 of chapter 40 of Job. He says, no, I'm not taking that, that answer. Job says, I'm not going to say anything. I have nothing to say. God says, no, gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? He says, are you going to question what I'm doing? a lot like nebuchadnezzar when he had experienced what it was to live like a beast and i think physically be transformed in many ways to be a a, a strange beast of the field and after a long time of living there in the field and recognizing his own weakness and the terrible condition nebuchadnezzar speaks to the praise of god when he's restored and what does he say he says he works his will and the armies of the heavens among the inhabitants of the earth none can stay his hand Or say, what doest thou? God says, wilt thou disannul my judgment? Are you going to say I'm wrong to allow what I've allowed? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Job, are you going to say that what's happening to you is wrong? So that you can be justified? Hast thou an arm like God? Or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? That's the questions. Are you going to question my judgment? Are you going to question my glory? Are you going to question my power? Do you have the power that I have? Do you have the voice that I have to speak and the whole world listens? But then there's some statements, some declarations, some commands that Job can't keep. Verse 10, deck thyself now with majesty and excellency and array thyself with glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath and behold everyone that is proud and abase him. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together and bind their faces in secret. Then will I also confess unto thee that thine own right hand can save thee. An encounter with the glory of God brings us to a place of worship, a place of trust, a place of obedience. And that's what Job just had. What does God say? Job, are you so arrogant to think that you can be a God? Then go ahead make yourself like me. And when you do that, I'll say you can depend on yourself for your salvation. Well, Job certainly has no answer for this. God goes on to declare the glories of his creation. The wondrous things that he's done, that John's already told us, were done by the word, by Jesus Christ. And then 42, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything. Remember, Job has said, you know what? I'm out. I'm not going to answer. I'm not going to say anything. I'm done. God doesn't accept that answer. No, because God demands praise. It's not enough for Job to say, I can't answer you. I don't know. Job has to say this next profession. I know that thou canst do everything, that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Hear and I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare thou to me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. But now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. What we need in the church of Jesus Christ today, what we need as believers is to come to that place where we're able to say with Job, my eye seeth thee. If our faith, if our trust, if our religion is only a body of knowledge, if it's only what we've received and professed to believe, or if it's only a logical argument or a systematic theology, it's not enough. And that's what John says. We beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. We need to understand that about Jesus Christ. We need to understand that about our God. He is full of grace. He's full of truth. John understood that in a very personal way. Because he walked with the Lord. And think about that. Think about understanding that Jesus Christ is God And he is holy and he is perfect. And imagine living with him for three and a half years. Making mistakes daily. Sinning against him daily. Knowing that he hears your conversations when you're discussing your doubts and your fears with the other disciples. Some of them are recorded in the scripture. Remember when, when they were on the boat crossing the Sea of Galilee and there was a great storm and the Lord was asleep in the hold? And the disciples came down and rebuked him and said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? This is God they're talking to. As though he doesn't know there's a storm going on. As though he's going to allow them all to perish. What a ridiculous idea. Some of them we don't hear about these guys were working-class sinners. The words that came out of their mouth could not have all been praising God, magnifying his word. Jesus heard and knew these things. Not only that, he knew the very thoughts of their heart, the things they weren't saying. And then James and John, the brothers, the ones he called the sons of thunder, traveling down the road with him discussing which one of them is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And their mother comes to him and says, Master, please grant my request that that John can sit on your one side and James on the other when you come into your kingdom. None of that is presented to us to make us look down on these men. No, these were among the blessed of all men, these apostles that Jesus selected. But it's to make us think about what we, we would be doing, who you and I are, and what we do daily having seen the Lord. So John understood what he was talking about. So when he says full of grace, how gracious was Jesus to just put up with that day in, day out? How gracious was Jesus when he hung upon the cross, when they looked upon him whom they had pierced, and Jesus Christ spoke from the cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. You want to know truth? Look to Jesus. Jesus spoke truth. He was full of truth. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they declare truth. The Old Testament scripture declares truth. The book of Acts and the New Testament epistles declare truth. The revelation given to the same author declares truth. Full of grace and full of truth. John writes in his first epistle closing out, We know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. He's given us an understanding. He's given us truth. So Satan wars against the truth in many ways. As he did with Eve, he asks, is this really what God said? And if it is, do you really understand what he meant? And Satan takes the scripture and he asks us to doubt it. This probably isn't literal. This is probably metaphorical or allegorical or this is just a story to teach a point. The creation story, it's not real. It's just a simple way of telling people God was involved in the creation. He didn't really speak things into existence fully formed. He didn't create the earth in six days nor rest on the seventh day. Science says that can't be so. But the thing about science falsely so-called It's much more ready to tell you what can't be so than to explain how it could be so. And the faith it takes to believe in one impossible truth is no different than the faith it takes to believe in another. And Jesus Christ, the creator, through the light of nature has manifest the impossibility of what we see with our eyes outside of his creative work, his creative power, and his glory. Whatever we believe is a matter of faith. It's a matter of trust. But by his grace, God has given us full revelation. He's given us an anchor to hold to, to cling to, to believe. And before we chip away at the weight of that anchor, before we accept arguments of foolish and vain and empty men. We need to consider whether we've seen Christ. Job says, mine eyes have seen you. And having seen you, I believe you. And I know that you can do everything, even the impossible. And John and the other apostles They were willing to die for this truth, this revelation. Because they had seen Christ. But in his gospel, John points out to us the words of the Savior. As Thomas said, I'll only believe if I can thrust my fingers into the nail prints on his hands. I'll only believe if I can stick my hand into the spear wound on his side. And then Jesus appears and says, Thomas... Reach forth your fingers. Reach forth your hand. Thomas never did it. He worshipped. He said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, you're blessed because you've seen and you've believed. But more blessed than you are they who have not seen and yet have believed. And the Apostle Paul refers to himself in exactly that manner. He says, I was I was brought as one born out of due time. I was made to see. I was made to rejoice. I was made to believe. And Peter on the day of Pentecost, as he said, repent and be baptized every one of you. He said the blessing is going to be upon you and upon your children and even those that are afar off. And that blessing is ours today. Why? Why? Because Jesus Christ is real, and Jesus Christ is alive, and John records that. So John's gospel is not given as a chronological record. It's not given as a day-by-day record of Christ's ministry. He closes it out, in fact, by saying, if everything that the Lord said and did were written in a book, I suppose the world couldn't contain the books that must be written. But he says, I've communicated what's essential, what's important, that we must confess. And that is what? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Jesus Christ is verily God and verily man. Anything that we do to try to engage in a discussion on that topic, anything that we do to try to explain the mystery beyond the pages of God's word, is going to result in a disaster. It's going to result in us depriving God of his deity, or it's going to result in us claiming too much for ourselves. Either one of those makes worship impossible, and it wars against the very foundation of our relationship in him. In closing, I want to read to you a poem. It's... Attributed to Isaac Watts, I'm not entirely sure that he wrote it, I gleaned it from an old Primitive Baptist hymn book. But it deals with these verses of John chapter one. Ere the blue heavens were stretched abroad from everlasting was the Word. With God was he with God he was, the Word was God, and must divinely be adored. By his own power were all things made, by him supported all things stand. He is the new creation's head, and angels fly at his command. Ere sin was born, or Satan fell, he led the host of morning stars. Thy generation, who can tell, or count the number of thy years? But lo, he leaves those heavenly forms, the word descends and dwells in clay." that he may hold converse with worms, dressed in such feeble flesh as they. Mortals with joy behold his face, the eternal Father's only Son. How full of truth, how full of grace, when through his flesh the Godhead shone. Bright angels leave their high abode to learn new mysteries here. And tell the love of our descending God The glories of Emmanuel Thank you for your attention this morning Thank you for your faithfulness to the word of God And your worship to Jesus Christ Who is in all things to have the preeminence And who's coming again And all the world is going to bow before him And every tongue Even those who hated him. Even those who will perpetually hate him, every tongue is going to confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. The wonderful thing about God and his glory is that even his enemies are forced to worship him. And that day's coming. Thank you so much. God bless you. as we sing.